Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. This is episode number 65 of the Out of the Question podcast, and today Steve and I will be tackling the question, should the hymns we sing be inspiring or inspired? And before I give Steve a chance to go behind this question, let me tell you what prompted it. Often when I'm in my car, I'll turn on my Pandora app and listen to a station that plays Christian artists that I really enjoy. If I'm down, I often feel uplifted. However, over the past couple of weeks, I've noticed that there are very few, if any, songs that are teaching doctrine or encouraging the call to be dominion-minded and seeking the kingdom of God. So that got me thinking, what is the purpose of the call in Ephesians 5.19 that we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart? So that goes back to my original question. Are the songs we sing, are the hymns we sing, are they supposed to make us inspired or should they be inspired by God's word? So, Steve? Well, this is not a, a original question to us, to this idea of inspired, meaning songs that come directly from the Bible has been a discussion in the church for 2,000 years. You know, all the way back to St. Ambrose there, the gentleman who baptized the famous St. Augustine, uh, we've been writing music based on the scripture. In fact, the very basic songbook of the church has always been the book of Psalms. Through the Old Testament, the temple worship was arranged around reading these 150 Psalms, singing them, chanting them as the primary way to worship the Lord in the temple. In fact, if you look through the life of Christ, he is teaching us that the Psalms are how we find our encouragement, our strength, our basic text of who God is. And the various prayer lives of the ancient Jews and the early Christians were structured around singing the Psalms. There's a lot of history here, we can get into that, but I think what's missing from a lot of modern Christian music is an attachment to that book of Psalms. You know, that used to be at one time that a person to become a minister would have to memorize all 150 Psalms. This was the practice. uh, Wait, wait, wait. Memorize all 150 Psalms. Memorize all 150. And they would do this systematically because ancient Christians, meaning the Christians of the first 1,500 years of the church, this is the the tradition that Calvin really picked up. Ancient Christians believed that the Psalms were our song and that the best way to praise God was with the words that were inspired by God himself. We often forget that the author of Psalm 1 and Psalm 150 is the Lord Jesus himself. This is how Jesus described himself being worshipped. And so just as we pray the Lord's Prayer because this is how we pray, we pray the Psalms. We sing the Psalms because Jesus said this is how you worship. And so a a minister would memorize these as a part of his ordination process. And it was much simpler than you think because from the very beginning of their formation, when they're three, four years old, they're memorizing chunks of the Psalms every single day. That was the primary form of family devotion. We're going to do Psalm 1 on Monday, Psalm 2 on Tuesday. And they had these year-long calendars that they would repeat and repeat, and the church services would match them. And so by the time an adult would get to age ready for ordination to uh, the ministerial role, then he had 20, 30 years of memorizing Psalms. He already had start. Uh, But then he was 
ordained to be a worship leader, to somebody who was teaching the Psalms. And so all of Christian music, from the ancient periods to the medieval periods to the Renaissance period, has always been built around these Psalms. It doesn't matter if you're looking at uh, Ambrose or Calvin, Luther, the Huguenots, any period in history where there's an emphasis on great theology, there's an emphasis on great psalmic music. It's interesting because the first thought I could hear almost people saying is memorizing all of that. Oh, that's an awful lot to expect. But think of all the things we do know by memorization. This really came home to me when my son was very little. We were homeschooling and he could recite or sing the jingles of various commercials on television. And there were things that he knew from movies he had seen over and over again. And it got me thinking, after I read something in Dr. Rushduni's book, The Philosophy of the Christian Curriculum, that there are some schools that had their students memorize the book of Proverbs. And so I said, why not? And so I said to him, you need to memorize the book of Proverbs. Well, he was seven years old, and he started. And he went all the way through Proverbs 8 because then we, you know, got doing other different things. But he could do each individual proverb all the way through, and they're very similar to each other. And it showed me that we grossly underestimate what children can do, but you're not even saying that the thing was, okay, everybody had to memorize it. They were so inundated and surrounded by it that it became things that they learned just the way there's a lot of things we can say that we've never endeavored to actually memorize. That's right. I was just teasing my wife that when we go through a grocery store, we can see different name brands of products and we'll see that name brand and we instantly know the jingle from the radio, the song from their TV commercial, we recognize their tagline. And there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of brands where I can say a brand name and you can tell me something about their marketing slogan niche, right? So your body naturally becomes formed by the things you're surrounded most with. If I say McDonald's, you can say, I'm loving it, right? So you, whatever you submerge yourself, immerse yourself into, that becomes part of who you are. And so since our worship today is so separated from the Psalms, they feel foreign to us. Now, before I was involved in, in Christian education, I was in the pro-life ministry, and I did a lot of college ministry, and sometimes I would do things that were controversial, and there were several times when I had to interact directly with, with police officers, and we had older men with us who would give us instructions about how to, be, how to treat police officers, but the, the great thing to write in your pro-life newsletter was I was on a campus, or I was doing this protest, and we got unlawfully arrested by the police. Right? So that was like a, a glory thing because it reminded us of you know, what the apostles did and how they stood for Christ and they ended up getting arrested. But every time we would get close to that situation, one of our leaders would remind us, you know, we got to come up with songs to sing, you know, just like Paul and Silas when they're singing in the Philippian jail. We need to have that in our hearts, not anger, not animosity, those songs that we're going to sing. And when I was doing pro-life ministry, I was a new Christian. And so I didn't have a lot of, of songs to sing. And so it concerned me that if I was to get arrested, what would I, what would I sing? I, I know probably like the first two verses of Amazing Grace and some other church music that I've learned in my evangelical church. But I didn't have what Paul and Silas had, a catalog of songs and spiritual songs that when I'm in the middle of persecution or in the middle of a trouble or strife, that 
when I am knocked over by the world, what comes out of me? When I'm poured out, is it the songs of God or is it my inner flesh? And so worship and, and filling ourselves with psalms and spiritual songs is more than just a stylistic choice or, or an aesthetic. It's also about being filled with what God's word is and making sure that what comes out of you is like what came out of St. Paul and St. Silas. I think that's a really good point because the Bible tells us that we should hide the word in our heart so that we might not sin against God. And it seems to me that by being able to incorporate these things, it gives you a way to think. So what do you do when you're in trouble? When enemies seem all around you, well, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And we posit the promise of God that he'll be there and set a table before us in the presence of our enemy. So it's encouragement, but so many of the Psalms are also calls to biblical warfare to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil in the power of the Holy Spirit and being able to go on with our mission as opposed to just retreat into, I'm only going to sing when I'm feeling bad or I'm only going to sing because I'm lonely or, or whatever it is, that there's really a call to dominion. That's right. And what people often miss is that many of your favorite songs, right, even modern contemporary songs, or even songs of the Reformation, find their origins in the book of Psalms. So for example, Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress, and we can say this is probably the battle cry of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But it's really just Martin Luther paraphrasing Psalm 45. How many of our songs are just like that, of them taking the Psalms and applying it to our time. On Martin Luther, he also said that the book of Psalms was the Bible in miniature because inside the book of Psalms, you have all of the theology of the Messiah, which is why of all the books as Jesus Christ quotes during his earthly ministry, the Psalms appear over and over again because he is telling that the song and the anticipation, the pain, the glory that was promised in the book of Psalms has now been fulfilled in Christ. So if you want to sing Christian music, it has to be built around the framework of the Psalms. And the other thing is, and I imagine this has something to do with when you said that in times past they were singing it in family devotions, etc. A lot of the hymns that are doctrinally rich are also hymns that have a tune that you can replicate. One of the things I love about being in a church that sings traditional hymns is, number one, you don't have to audition and find out if you have a good voice to do it. God accepts your worship and song. We're commanded to sing. So I figure that the people next to me who might not like it so much, I always figure by the time it gets a little bit higher, it turns into a sweet savor, even if it's not for other people. But contemporary music, there's no tune. So when they introduce sometimes a new song in some um, some churches, some more modern churches or, you know, uh, seeker-friendly churches, you can't even sing the song because you can't figure out the tune. That's right. And that's not to say that all contemporary music is bad, but that there is a difference in perspective. And again, this is something that happens cyclically in the history of the church, that music becomes in the church a matter of performance. And so today, we can see through the architecture of the church, you have a, a stage up front with a rock band, with microphone stands, with drum kit, in most modern evangelical churches. So the, the idea that 
the, the worship service as a concert lends itself to concert music. If you have a amplified voice, amplified instruments, all of these things that are making it difficult for the congregation to participate, then you're creating a one-way version of worship. Worse than that is what you described, that the songs and their form have been matched not to the historical Western forms of oral singing, which emphasize individual participation. You have to be an expert singer to sing some of these worship songs, or you have to be some kind of you know, a special contemporary singer. They're meant to be sung by an individual over an audience rather than by the congregation. And I think that's important because one of the significant contributions of the Reformation was taking worship from the front of the church and giving it back to the people. It's going to sound strange to say this, but the evangelical style of worship today has more in common with the Roman Catholic Church of the medieval period than it does with any Protestant tradition. You see, in the medieval period, there were groups of singers who would travel from church to church, and the the priest and the laity would pay these groups of singers to sing the Mass. They were professional singers who would sometimes come with instruments, but they would sing the Mass for the people. And so the priest would do his readings, he would do his sermon, he would do his you know, offering as far as consecrating the elements, and the people would passively, and that's the key word here, passively observe a band singing the responsive songs, singing the hymns, and the general laity, the, the common people at the time, just before the Reformation, were excluded from worship because the singing, the style was too difficult for them to participate in. We see that exact same thing happening today. What was significant about John Calvin and his view on worship is he produced the Genevan Psalter, which was the book of Psalms put metrically, published, and being taught to women, children, and the laity. Calvin himself said that the power of the Reformation came from teaching these doctrines through song to children. And he had this view that if mothers and fathers taught the theology of the Reformation through the Psalms to their children, that the Reformation would continue. And so you can see how the the architecture, the structure of the music, who's singing and how you choose your songs really changes your theology of what worship is. For Calvin, he was bringing down the worship from the altar to the people and having them actively participate through song. He was confirming what St. Augustine said, that he who sings prays twice. Something that's very interesting is in the medical world or in the world of health and illness prevention, there is a body of information that says that when people sing, and they're talking about it in terms of the inhalation and how much carbon dioxide stays inside and how much oxygen is useful enough, that it actually improves their mood and their outlook. And I always thought, isn't that interesting, that the church has built into it, at least in, in more traditional circles, not just one hymn or a bunch of you know music at the beginning, but that it's where, as you said, participation and five, six, seven verses. And in those verses, that as we're breathing more and breathing differently when we sing than when we talk, we're learning about the Trinity. We're learning about our need for a Savior. We're learning about the promises of God. And to me, it makes total sense that you would have a healthier population to the degree, not only that they're singing, 
but they're singing with the object of their worship being the Trinity. And that's why some of our most early hymns are like the Te Deum or these hymns that were written doctrinally. And if you look at the history of the church, doctrine and music really go close together. And if we as Reformation Christians really believe the Holy Scriptures are the apex of all Christian knowledge, right? If the self-revealing scriptures are the source of all wisdom, they should be the source of all music as well. And this is really interesting because if you look at the uh, 6th century, you have the last great pope, as John Calvin calls him, uh, Gregory I. And Gregory is who we get the name Gregorian chant from. And what he did is he standardized a lot of musical forms uh, throughout the West, So he took music and he created notation, common notation. He took the music and he said, here is a common psalm book. And he also banished all instruments from the church. And we can see that again happening uh, in the last 300 years with the Reformation. But his reasoning for getting rid of instruments and standardizing notation and coming up with polyphonic singing was that Gregory wanted nothing, nothing to get in the way of the words of the scripture being faithfully proclaimed through song. And so when we hear Gregorian chant today, we think, oh, what a a Roman Catholic, superstitious, you know, out of this world experience. But for Gregory, way back in the sixth century, he is thinking, how do I elevate the scripture to be the preeminent part of the worship? And he says, well, we're going to take every other distraction out so that the people are just hearing the word of God unadulterated. And I've heard it said that the human voice is the one instrument God created directly, that everything else is an imitation of it. And so you do have an instrument in worship when people sing. It's just the one God placed inside of them. No, that's true. The word for psalm in uh, in the original language means like to pluck a harp string, right? The psalm is like a onomatopoeia, right? So to pluck a harp string is to sing a psalm. And Jordan, James B. Jordan, talks about how the human body represents every type of instrument. So from the back of your throat down to the middle of your chest, we have these strings that are vibrating. You know, whether we pluck them like a a violin or vibrate them, uh, these strings are the ones making the noise. And so every stringed instrument is imitating the natural sound of the human voice. Or you have this air that comes up through your windpipe and out your mouth. Uh, And for me, in my case, it sounds a lot like a horn. (laughs) But every instrument, you know, every clarinet, flute, is imitating that type of function of the air coming out of the horn. The human body itself is also percussive. The Psalms say, oh, clap your hands. And he says that mountains and trees and all these things should clap their hands. So this percussive nature whether now you think of drums or tambourines, or, are all modeled or pictures of the human body worshiping, which makes sense because if you go back and you say, okay, man is made in the image of God to give glory to God, and he gives him in his body everything he needs. He gives him language, but he also gives him these physical pieces of him, wind, <laughs> strings, and uh, percussion. And then man, who is an agent of dominion, then takes the things in this world and he forms instruments modeled after his own image to worship God. And so you see throughout the Psalms that man is kind of fashioning the things of this world into flutes, trumpets, uh, all these different instruments to create little versions of himself to glorify the thing that created him. And so 
worship itself is an act of recreation. And if you look at vocal chorus, you basically have four demarcations, the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the bass, and it's even reflective of that there are different kinds of strings that God gives to men, that he gives to women, and that uh, the flutes and the higher instruments would be more feminine, and the tuba and your bass would be like a man's voice. But when you blend them all together, when you hear four-part harmony, for example, it's a sound that no one person can produce on his own. Anybody who's studied music theory or learned to play an instrument can see if the notes on the board are just math. Nature itself reveals the glory of God. And so there's this orderly universe, and as you have just described, where all of these natural parts of us are expressed in their diversity, right? So music itself is also proclaiming the glory of God in creation by teaching our children uh, good Christian views of music and hymnology, that we are actually proclaiming a, a God who is sovereign over the ordered universe. And it really dispels the idea of anybody believing in the chaos or chance universe if they're taught from the very beginning that their body and their worship are reflections of what they were created to do. It's very interesting. In modern times at Christmas, you will have a lot of groups, not necessarily Christian, but some who will go to Messiah sing-alongs. And so Handel's Messiah is just full of scripture. He hardly has any part of it that isn't. And so people gravitate toward that. I honestly think that we could have great hymn sings where people come together and in many cases learn how to sing because a lot of people have not learned how to sing. They think that, oh, you know, you have to have special talents so then you get on the radio, you get in front of, you know, that you're a recording artist. Well, we don't have to record it, but we should be singing. And it's, a, it's an area where it has been deficient in modern education and in a lot of ways even Christian education. That's right. Well, and your, your original question asked if this was inspired, right, talking about whether this is an emotional appeal or if it comes from the Word of God. And I think what's important for our listeners to think through is if we think of the last maybe 50 or 60 years of American music, it's largely been consumer-driven, just like you mentioned, recording artists, recording for concert, recording for record sales. It's consumer-driven. The person who sells the most records gets the biggest deal, gets the biggest venue, and the rest of the recording artists follow suit. You know, it's a consumer-based model. But if we look back at Christian history, I think there are two factors that uh, make music different for them. One is that from... From Vivaldi, Bach, Handel, Haydn, all these guys, they're writing primarily church music, right? So you have people who are actually writing settings for music to be performed in churches because the church was the center of, of lots of culture. Uh, but they're also living in times where the Bible is the primary source of inspiration for art and music, right? So they're, they're very well steeped in music and in the Bible, and they create these great masterpieces. Is there a Vivaldi of the year 2010, right? Is, are, are we going to look back at this period of American history? Are we going to find folks who match up to, you know, Mendelssohn or Chopin? Are these names that we associate with Christian history, are we going to have their equivalents in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2010s, or has our model of consumer-driven 
consumer-driven music actually devalued and has created less quality music than has been done in times past? Well, I think that it's a resounding yes. I, I remember I, I went to a parochial school growing up, and even though I couldn't necessarily tell you the Latin now, at the beginning of any paper we had to write, we had to have on the top AMDG. And those were Latin words, which, like I said, I can't remember now, but it meant for the greater glory of God. And I remember hearing that Bach on the top of all his compositions would have that on the top because he was creating his music for the greater glory of God. Well, imagine if you could put that to a lot of the contemporary music, whether or not it's in the church. Does it glorify God to sing about the girl who left you for the fifth time because you cheated on her? And these are the kinds of things that people sing about. And I grant you, there are people who could probably sing those songs a whole lot more than they could, you know, sing any of the psalms. So a lot of what comes out of our mouth has a lot to do with what we hear and then what our orientation point is. Is this being done for the greater honor and glory of God? And Ken Myers from Mars Hill Audio has a book he wrote a number of years ago. Uh, you've probably read this called uh, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes where he talks about how popular culture has really changed how Christians function in our culture. And there's a, a picture that he shows. It's not directly related to music, but I think uh, our listeners will get the point, where he talks about uh, food. And he says that a culture that primarily, and I'm, this is not a verbatim quote, but he talks about how a culture that primarily gets their food through a drive through window and opens up a, a clamshell box, and that's how they receive the beauty of food, is going to have a different view of eating and food and socialization and uh, family than a family 50 years ago who primarily received food that was home-cooked, was put on the table, they ate together. So how we do things, how we experience the beauty or how we experience creation, how we organize it, how we package it, how we form it, affects what that thing is. And I think the same thing is true for music how we package the Christian truths into their songs and how we distribute them to people, how we experience them is going to change the culture and therefore change the theology of those things. Now, I think that's really important in our day and age because we have a problem with, I guess I would call emotive uh, worship, right? Where the primary purpose of worship, as you say, is to feel inspired, right? To feel some emotional connection to the song. And, of course, nobody would doubt that the Psalms express every gamut of emotion, whether it's <laughs> Psalm 23, where you're afraid uh, and you're seeking comfort in God, or it's Psalm 100, where you're claiming God to be your protection. You know, the Psalms themselves provide emotional connection to God. They are written as emotional songs, so not to say that. But that the culture of modern evangelical worship has become feminine or has become a emotional sentimentality that is not helpful to attracting the whole spectrum of the church. There's a great book written a number of years ago by David Murrow. I think he's United Methodist, but he wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And in this book, he talks about how everything we do in our church today has been formed by this consumerist culture, this idea of worship being for the individual and so even our music has become feminized and you know, repulsive to men because instead of singing 
the great hymns of the Reformation, where God's powerful and almighty, uh, we're appealing to the emotional parts of God, where Jesus is our boyfriend, as these <laughs> modern hymns sound like. But the, the emotional nature of worship should be bigger than me and my emotions. You know, Jesus, of course, wept and had these emotional feelings, but there is nothing more shallow than a song that makes you cry for its moment there and then moves on leaving you with nothing, you know, a, a tear that dries the quickest, right? I think that American worship, because it's adopted this consumerist pop culture model, has moved away from being something for the whole family, something for men and women, something for dominion to being very individual oriented, very emotionally oriented. You know, I must confess that the inspired or inspiring combination there is not original to me. I first heard it in either Dr. Rushdie's writing or lecture since I've pretty much done a lot of each. But he says a lot of people talk about the Bible as being an, a very inspiring book. He said, the Bible isn't an inspiring book as its intent. It's an inspired book. For example, like when people like to talk about the promises of God, well, my husband and I are going through the book of Deuteronomy currently as part of our devotion. And, you know, if you read Deuteronomy 28, you might say that the first 14 verses that talk about God's promises for faithfulness are uplifting and inspiring. But if you read the remaining verses and talk about all the devastation to those who disobey God and being able to see in 2019 how a lot of those things are being played out, I wouldn't call it inspiring. But once you realize it's inspired and it's God's truth, then it opens your eyes to that which you're doing correctly and that which you're not. And I think that's one of the greatest benefits of the hymns that I grew up with and that we would call traditional, doctrinally sound, multiverse hymns because it's a progression. And there are times, depending on areas of my life where I've sinned or areas of my life where I'm hurting, that I sometimes can't even make it through an entire hymn because it's touching me where I live, but it might be verse 6 as opposed to just verse 1, which is usually what most people know. That's right. Well, and anybody who's had the lead music know that the congregation can't pick up on the tune to like the second or third verse anyway. So you need to sing it a couple of times for them to learn it. But that's something that's really lost. It used to be said that the folks could tell people who were Christians or who people who were non-Christians because the Christians could sing, right? So that was one of the, the marks of being a Christian is that you were taught to read and to sing music. I don't think that if we did a survey of Americans today that they would be known for their ability to sing. They wouldn't be known for their ability to recall hymns. They wouldn't be known for their ability to recall psalms. Americans today are, are losing that heritage. They're losing that identity as being a people who sing. And that is something that is going to affect not just the theology of uh, are we singing the best things, are we giving God the best worship, but we're going to lose the underpinnings of that. We're going to lose an identity as a Christian people because we won't have a common song. You know, today, if you are gathered with the folks at, at a protest or gathered with some folks at uh, a special occasion. Most people can get together and sing Amazing Grace, right? We, we can all sing the first verse, at least, as you say, Andrea. But that's, that's a common heritage. 
that I don't know is going to be, that's going to exist in the next generation. But if we were to go back two generations from now, there was a whole hymn book of common heritage, of common ideas. Instead, that's been replaced with, uh, you know, the charismatic groups who produce songs like Oceans or Reckless Love. The very songs we sing form who we are. You know, what we, how we pray, how we sing forms what we believe. That's what the, the whole principle of Thomas Cramner's Reformation was. The way in which we pray is the way in which our theology is shaped. That's why there is no Reformation movement that does not also change the way we worship. Now, the other part of that is when you teach people to sing, you're teaching them theology in a different way. See, if you're like me and you grew up in the, the Ligonier generation, uh, you learned theology through R.C. Sproul, where he writes words and diagrams on a board, and the primary way you received the great truths of the Reformation was through lecture, right? And this has kind of been the model you know, since the last 150 years where we have to protect our theology through the university, right? through the seminary, through the theological textbook. The primary way that Reformed people think we receive God's information is through chapters, tapes, and <laughs> through lectures. But for the vast majority of Christian history, where it was assumed that you were a Christian, the way that you received this information was through prayer, through song, through worship. That for the older generation of Christians, and when I say older, I don't mean 1950s, I mean the year 50, right? So for the Christians of the ancient times, the Jews of the ancient times, the way that we passed on what it meant to worship God, to believe and think rightly, was through the way we worshipped. The way that we sung songs formed how we believed who God was. And so a generation like me who wants to emphasize the sovereignty of God, who wants to emphasize the dominion mandate of all creation, who wants to emphasize that God is truly the king of kings here and now, needs to take God's songbook, the book of Psalms, and memorize it, work through it. We need to allow God's music to reflect God's word. And we should allow it to form who we are. Music should never be viewed as like this aesthetic cherry on the top of a theology ice cream. The music is the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And that's why the worship service is interspersed with hymns and songs. That's why when Christians are persecuted, they sing psalms. That's why when Jesus is demonstrated what it means to be the Messiah, he teaches through psalms. Music is not an alternative or an optional thing. It's a central thing. And it's not that when we come to a church service, when we're, where we're meeting with other believers, that the primary focus has got to be just on hearing the sermon, although we need and want the scriptures expounded. But it can also be expounded in the hymns we sing and our participation. It's also expounded as the offerings and the tithes that we bring forth. So it isn't that we come there to be consumers and be talked at or sung to. It's that we pray corporately and we sing corporately and we corporately listen to a message that we're supposed to then go out and apply to our lives. And so I think what our cult should be as, as Christians who are considering uh, music is really to be familiar with the history of church music, uh, which means that we have a great responsibility as educators to teach our kids basically you know, from 
St. Ambrose all the way to Stravinsky, we should have a view that Western musical history, what we traditionally call classical music, is Christian music. And we have a responsibility to be familiar with those forms, with those artists, and to expect that their quality of music, the way that they were able to uh, compose lyrics and tunes, was not a result of individual genius. Right? It's not that Beethoven or Mozart or Haydn were particularly gifted, although they were, but that their music was the natural result of faithful obedience by the church and by the families and by other tithe agencies that were functioning and teaching a worldview that included the Bible and music. And so if we, as Christians today, want to escape this idea of, of Christian ghettos, where Christian music today is just a, a poor copy of American music, then we must return to the foundations of psalm worship. We must return to the foundations of Christian Western classical music, teaching our children these foundations. Otherwise, we will continue to follow in the footsteps of modern misled evangelical music. Now, there's a a TV show that ran probably about a decade ago. It was an animated TV show, not very wholesome, but it was called King of the Hill. And there's an episode where the father and his son have a conflict because the father is a traditional Methodist and the son has gotten wrapped up in this evangelical youth group. And the youth group teaches Jesus through a rock band. And now some of you who know my story know I came to faith through uh, Toby Mac, which is not really a traditional Western Christian music. But in this episode of this TV show, the son gets so enamored, he wants to be a Christian rock band. And the dad takes the son and this artist aside, and he says, you're not making Christianity better. You're making rock music worse. And I think that is, <laughs> that is what's happening here, is we seem to think that the forms right? Uh, the styles, the instruments, all of these things, that those are adiaphora, neutral, that God has no intention or, or purpose for those. And what really matters is, you know, what words did we choose to say? And if a Christian song used the same exact tune as Nirvana, but replaced the words with Jesus and the Trinity, that it would be good Christian music. Or that if we took various forms of modern contemporary Christian music and we matched them with great theological words that that would solve all of our problems. The issue is not so much that we've got the content wrong, but that we've separated the forms in such a way that truth, goodness, and beauty have been seen as matters of preference rather than reflections of who God is and of how he's revealed himself through the last 6,000 years of creation history. And so saying all of that to come to the conclusion that Christians should be producing, of course, great music, but they can't do it standing on their own two feet, that they must lean, as all great composers did of the last 2,000 years, on the shoulders of Christian composers in Christian history, that music that goes off and tries to be its own standard will inevitably be bad music. You know, John Cage, as Francis Schaeffer points out, uh, is a man of his own standard who creates his own identity of what good music is based on his own personal aesthetic. He has become a God unto himself, ignoring that there is a Christian view of music, of worship, of hymns. And the result for John Cage was to go into chaos, to nonsense. Well, 
how can a Christian be intentional about creating good music without standing, of course, on the history of Christian music? And if you go back to the scripture I referenced in Ephesians 5, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, there's a place for all of them. But the order, I think, is important. So just like we can have a spiritual song that talks about an aspect of being selfish and why we shouldn't or whatever it is, when we're actually singing the Psalms or we're actually singing hymns that oftentimes will show you the, the, the scripture passage that the whole hymn was based on, or even throughout it, you will see familiar references to it that they are appropriate, but not all in the same context and all the same way. So whereas you might have a genuine feeling of gratitude to God for having saved you from something that was distressing, and you might repeat your thanksgiving over and over and over again like a lot of the choruses in modern music do, but if not everybody had that same experience, by the time they're singing it for the 15th time, if they didn't understand why it was being done in the first place, whereas when you have doctrine that's infused into the actual hymn, then the word of God will speak to you where you are. That's right. It's And it's always about uh, really access. One thing that the scripture says about how we receive the word of God is it puts this emphasis on hearing the word of God. And often as Reformed and Reformation Christians, we hear hear the word of God as preaching, like you said, an an emphasis on preaching. But hearing the word of God for the Levitical priesthood meant faithfully singing the Psalms to the people, that the Levitical priesthood taught temple worship as a way of sharing the word of God with not just the people, but also saying those words back to the Lord. Just as a sacrifice was offered upon the altar to the Lord, so too were those words, that the primary person and object of worship always has to be the Lord. And so if we approach worship saying, what are my particular music tastes? What lyrics do I like? What songs are my favorite songs? We really missed one of the primary purposes of worship, which is that we might be reoriented to give praise to God. And God has told us what words he wants to hear in worship. And so the, the Levitical priesthood models this for this. They say the Psalms back to God the Psalms of Thanksgiving, the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of lament, all of these different tones and emotions that God wants us to repeat back to him, to remind him of his work, of his promises, of his grace, of his law. All of those things exist in the book of Psalms. Now, the problem is once we move the music away from focusing on me and then focusing on God, then it becomes less appealing to do that, right? So contemporary music has this ability to access that everybody can follow along with Chris Tomlin or Toby Mac because their style of singing is very much like the radio. It's like something we've heard similarly, right? They use similar ranges of vocals, similar drum patterns, similar melodies. So the idea of passively singing along to uh, modern Christian music Uh, is very similar to the consumer-driven model that we mentioned earlier. But what I think is most difficult for people when they think of traditional Christian music is that they can't sing, they can't follow along, it's intimidating, and therefore they're turned off by the idea that God's word in song might have them change who they are. 
Right. I remember the first time I came to a traditional music service, even trying to follow the staffs. You know, first verse is on line one, second verse is on line two. There's a repeat here. I don't know what those symbols mean. Right. So the idea that Christianity would expect you to rise, to change who you are, to grow, to develop is contrary to a consumer model that wants to give you everything in a already chewed up, already digested format and set it just right on top of you so you can passively enjoy it. Christian worship and Christian music should require you to have to change who you are. It should require you to be trained and to develop, to grow, to be sanctified in the process of learning, practicing, and singing. Not that everybody's going to become an excellent singer. If you've been to my church, you'll see that I'm not an excellent singer. But church music, traditional Christian music, challenges us to give glory to God by changing and transforming our gifts, talents, our flesh and vocal cords into something that God honors, respects, and accepts. And so when you talk about inspired versus inspiring, worship is about God transforming you. Not you choosing words to transform yourself. Not you selecting emotional songs that will manipulate how you feel in that moment. But rather, timeless songs with timeless lyrics that are inspired by God that will transform you from a mere human to somebody who is giving glory to the creator of humans. Well, with that, I think we've covered it. Let me call attention to that there are plenty of people who have put together psalms lyrically and all you have to do is you know do a little bit of a search online and you will find many churches that have actually recorded the psalms all 150 of them this isn't to say there's nothing good out there it's much more of an orientation that says are we content with just being given milk when there's stronger food that we can digest and be able to be nourished from in the psalms given to us by God. And as we go forward as good Christian singers, (laughs) we can look at uh, folks like George Grant over at Parish Presbyterian and uh, Greg Wilbur who are creating psalms in contemporary forms. There, There are people who are doing that, and there are people who are reliving the Genevan psalms and producing those. There are people who are doing chants to this book of psalms, new translations. The idea is not that Christian music is now lost to us, but rather that we choose the less good. (laughs) It's just like Bible translation. 55% of all Americans use the King James, yet every person is told, read the NIV, read the message, read the ESV, read all of these new trendy translations. The same thing is true with hymns. Most Christians don't know oceans. They know a mighty fortress. They know (laughs) amazing grace. So the best thing we can do for the next generation of Christians is to go back to our Christian heritage, take dominion through biblical music. I agree. Well, thanks, folks, for listening in to our Out of the Question podcast. Feel free to contact us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Steve, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.